A well-known philosopher once said this, a religious person's God doesn't justify their ideology, politics, or religion. It critiques them and smashes their conceptions. Now listen to the brilliance of this, because I think this is such a significant quote that helps us to begin to think about our faith in a different way, begins to tweak how we understand faith, begins to help us to see faith in a different light, and I think the way that we should see our faith in light of Jesus' teaching. See, when you look at Jesus, Jesus would often say things like, you heard it said, but I tell you. Jesus took what people thought they knew, thought they understood, thought they had, their ideology, took their politics, took, 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 took their religion, took the things that they were certain about, and he said, wait a minute, let me begin to smash those conceptions, let me flip those around for you, let me help you to see things in a different way. That's the power of Jesus' teaching. That's the power of his life. That's the, that's the way that he operated. And it's so significant for us because that is one of those things that is so significant about Christianity. That is one of those things that helps us to see our faith in a different light. So listen to that quote again. A religious person's God doesn't justify their ideology, politics, or religion. It critiques them and smashes their conceptions. Now, with that quote in mind, we turn to one of those famous stories of Jesus that smashed the, smashed the conceptions of the religious people of his day and should continue to do the same for us today. We're going to look at two stories. The first of those stories is this. Luke chapter 10, starting in verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? Jesus replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. Now, there's a lot of debate about what's happening in this passage, what's happening in this conversation between Jesus and this expert in the law. You probably heard some things here that we've talked about in the past that drives who we are. This statement, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself, that drives the mission and vision that I talked about earlier that I put on the screen, exploring the way of Jesus as we learn to love God, love others, and bring life to our community. That statement comes from this conversation and another conversation just like it. But here's what I want us to see about this. There's something else going on at the depth of this conversation. You see, when, it, when it, we look at this, when we start the conversation, we see at the very beginning of this, we says, it says that the man intended to test Jesus. So this expert in the law, this person who knows the scriptures, who understood what was going on here, he says to Jesus, hey, w- what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? But listen, go back to that. It says he intended to, to test Jesus. So the, the, everything that comes after that begins to un, uh, unpack the conversation in a little bit different way, but how it opens up 
We don't really know what's coming next. And I, and I get a sense that the man didn't know what was coming next when he asked Jesus this. And this is such a significant part of the story. We need to see this from the very beginning. He intended to test Jesus. So perhaps the man was hoping that Jesus would say something revolutionary. See, if he tested Jesus and Jesus said something revolutionary, that would get Jesus in trouble. If he says something that's out of bounds, that's out of what people expected, out of what they were supposed to say or supposed to do, if he says something against the Roman Empire, for instance, people would say, hey, wait a minute, this is a guy we should not follow. So maybe that's the man's intention when he says he's going to test Jesus. Or perhaps, perhaps, the man thought that Jesus would say something ordinary. That Jesus would say something so vanilla, so normal, that the man would be comfortable following Jesus wherever Jesus was going. Maybe the man was looking for that. Maybe he's saying, hey, maybe if Jesus doesn't say something revolutionary, maybe maybe Jesus isn't the revolutionary that some people think. Maybe I can follow this. Maybe I like some things that Jesus has to say, so I'll test Jesus. I'll ask Jesus, you know, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? What he's saying is, hey, what's your story? What's your teaching about? What's at the center of what you're trying to teach, Jesus? And if Jesus says something that sounds, you know, kind of normal enough to me, maybe I can trust and maybe I can follow him and maybe it's not that revolutionary. So maybe perhaps, perhaps the man will be comfortable following Jesus. Either way, what's important here is what Jesus says to the man and how the, how the man answers. And that's what's amazing about this. So the man asks a question. Jesus responds, well, what do you say? What, what, what do you think? How, how do you read the law? You, you seem to know it. So what do you say that it says? The guy says, you know, love God, love others. And Jesus affirmed that. Jesus, Jesus says, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. So Jesus affirmed a pretty central tenet of the faith. And it doesn't seem to be that extreme to the people who would have heard this. This was central to the faith of most people in Jesus' day. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. That comes specifically from Scripture. And then love your neighbor as yourself is a thing that Jesus said was the second greatest commandment, or is, is the greatest commandment along with loving God. So loving God, loving others. But this wasn't that crazy. It wasn't that strange. It, it wouldn't have surprised anybody. I want us to see that today. But what does surprise people is what happens next. What does surprise people is the next question. And this question that this man asks shifts the story. And it's in that question that we find our focus today. Because in that question, Jesus smashes all of his conceptions. He smashes his ideology. He smashes his politics. He smashes his religion. See, the first part is about Jesus saying, you understand your faith. He says, you get the essence of this, loving God and loving others. But he says, let me show you what it looks like to truly live those out. And when Jesus answers this question of what it looks like to really live those out, he doesn't just challenge the man asking the question. He doesn't just challenge the people who are listening on the periphery. 
What he does is he challenges people all down through generation from generation from generation to us today and challenges everything that we've come to know and understand. He challenges our politics, our ideology. He challenges our religion. He smashes our conceptions. And it's so important for us, not just in this series, but in how we live our lives. So listen where this question comes from. Listen where this goes next as Jesus now shifts the focus. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Now, if we think about this as a battle of wits, if we think that at the beginning he's testing Jesus, this man has already lost the battle of wits. And he realizes that. He sees that. He knows that. The one that was testing is now being tested. So he asked a question here. Some scholars say that the man at this point is protecting his reputation. He came to Jesus planning to test Jesus. Everybody saw what he was doing. He realizes that he's lost that battle of wits, that all of a sudden things are now opened up a little bit, and he, he, he's now the one being tested here. So he shifts direction a little bit. He begins to protect his reputation. Then he likely expected an answer that Jesus would say something here that would make him look good. Perhaps Jesus might even do like he did before. Maybe he would allow him to answer his own question. That seems to be what Jesus did. So when he said, what's the path to eternal life? Jesus says, how do you read it? What do you see? And then Jesus affirmed that, which he should have affirmed. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself was a central aspect of faith. Maybe he'd look at the man and say, well, who do you think your neighbor is? You tell me. So when he says, and he asks Jesus, who is my neighbor, maybe Jesus would have quoted a passage like this, or maybe he would have allowed the guy the opportunity to quote a passage like this. In Isaiah 117, we find a passage that the man would have known, that the people would have known, that Jesus would have known. It says, learn to do right, seek justice, defend the oppressed, take up the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. Now, there are passages like this throughout scriptures that show us a part of faith is to help those in need, to do justice, to provide for orphans and widows, to care for the poor. This was a central part of their faith. So something like this was probably accomplished by the man. So when Jesus said, what, you know, he says, what is the path to eternal life? And Jesus says, how do you read it? He says, love God and love your neighbor. Love God with all your heart, your soul, and your mind, and love your neighbor. And he would have naturally begun to think about neighbor like this, the oppressed, the poor, the widow, the orphan. This would have been an expected answer. And the man would have said, I've done all these things. But this is again, this is where the story shifts. This is where the conceptions are smashed. Because in what came next, Jesus smashed this man's conception of what is neighbor. And in it, he challenged. He challenged his ideology. He challenged his theology. He challenged his prejudices. And Jesus in this answer does the same thing to us if we'd be willing to look below the surface. The story goes on in Luke 10, chapter, or verse 30. In reply, 
Jesus said. So he's not giving the man an opportunity to answer this question for himself. Jesus is going to answer the question. In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Hey, Joe, can you pop this up for a second? Because I, I want to make a point here. <laughs> so th this is one of those places. I, I, just, I just wanted to point this out. I wasn't sure if I'd add this in, but I think this is great. Sometimes when we read the scriptures, we make them pretty boring. Uh, but I want you to see something here that I think is pretty fascinating, is that when Jesus is telling this, there's a little bit of snickering taking place, actually, in the story. There would have been people who would have been like, wait a minute, what, what did he just say? And there would have been some laughter. Because the fact of the matter is that this road didn't have another side. Uh, the way that this road was situated to walk to the other side of the road was actually to throw yourself off a cliff. So I want you to see that here, and I want you to see a little bit of Jesus's humor. But I also want you to see how important this is. That the priest and the Levite here being told in this story that when it says that they walk to the other side, there is some humor there, but it's some dark humor. It's actually them saying, instead of caring for that person on a day, uh, this day, no, I'd rather just fall off a cliff. That's pretty, pretty crazy to think about. To realize that, that they're saying, I, I have some better things to do. I have some more important things in mind. So the people would have been like, wow. How much have I lived my life like that? How have I said, I'm too busy to help others. I'm too busy to make a difference. I don't have time for this. I'd rather throw myself off the edge of this cliff. It's a pretty, it's a pretty fascinating way to tell the story. So let's go on. So then it says, so to a Levite, when he came to the place, saw him, he passed by on the other side. Now listen, here's where the story gets crazy. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Now, here is where the story is so important. The last person that this man expected to walk into this story was a Samaritan. The, the, the story shows us that these people have better things to do. They would rather jump off a cliff than take care of this person. And then this Samaritan comes and takes care of them. And sometimes how we read the story is, hey, the Samaritan was the one who was willing to help this man. But there's another layer to this story. There's a way to take the cube of this story, the, the, all the dimensions of this story, and flip it around and see it in a way that the people who read this story in the first century, who heard Jesus tell the story in the first century, the way that they would have heard the story. And while there is a way to teach the story and to think about it as we should be helping others, absolutely we should be helping others, but the man already said that. He said, who is my neighbor? It's the person I should take care of. So that way of telling that story, yes, of course, you should take care of people. But the last person that this man expected to walk into this story was a Samaritan. And when he heard that the Samaritan cared for this man, he would have rather had the Samaritan walk to the other side and fall off the cliff than take care of this man. See, because the reality is for this, for as long as people could remember, 
conflict had existed between Jews and Samaritans. A lot of go- is going on in this story, but the essence is that these people shared a history. But the way they told the stories and how they worshipped had become very different. And the conflict was so extreme between Jews and Samaritans that when this hurt man heard and a Samaritan was coming down the road, he would have said, oh, I hope he walks to the other side. I hope he throws himself off the cliff. In fact, if I was in this story, the man is saying, I would help him throw himself off that cliff. That is how much animosity had grown between Jews and Samaritans. So for Jesus to enter a Samaritan in this story, for that Samaritan to be the good guy of this story is making people very uncomfortable who are listening to this story. So where does that animosity come from? Why is there animosity between these people? Well, we find their conflicts scattered throughout the stories of the Bible. A few months ago, we did a uh, series on the book of Nehemiah. You might remember that. Nehemiah had come back to build Jerusalem after a time of exile. And a man by the name of Sanballat the Horonite, the antagonist of the story, the bad guy of the story, the guy who tried to stop Nehemiah from building this wall, the guy who didn't want Jerusalem to be built, that man was a Samaritan. So people had been reading throughout their history that the bad guys of their stories were the Samaritans. It was a Samaritan who tried to stop us from rebuilding Jerusalem is what they would have been told. The way that they would have read this story was that there had always been this conflict between Samaritans and the Jews, that the good guys versus the bad guys. And there was always this sense in this conflict that was going back and forth between them. And as much as the Jewish people of that day hated the Samaritans because of this narrative, of this story that came from from their text that showed this, the Samaritans hated the Jews just as much for some things that they had done. See, this conflict between Jews and Samaritans had continued all the way up until the time of Jesus. Now, let's see the other side of this. Why did Samaritans hate Jews as much as Jews hated Samaritans? About 130 years before Jesus' birth, a man named John Hyrcanus came to power in Jerusalem. Now, the city had gained independence from Rome. They had been conquered. They had been, as throughout history, had several times it happened, but they had gained their independence from Rome. And Hyrcanus was the latest leader uh, in this line of leaders of, of an independent Jerusalem in the surrounding area. Well, Hyrcanus decided to continue this conflict with Samaria that he had been told, that he had read about, that he had experienced that went all the way back to the time of Nehemiah. So he went to war with Samaria when he gained power. And he conquered it. He killed people. He put people in slavery. He absolutely demolished Samaria about 130 years before the time of Jesus. And the people who followed him justified this because of what they read about Nehemiah, what they read about Sanballat the Samaritan, But in fact, Jewish pilgrims were routinely attacked. They were robbed. They were killed as they traveled from the north through Samaria on their way to the southern half of Israel and specifically to Jerusalem. And this continued after Rome retook power and into the time 
of Jesus. So I want you to understand, I want you to see how significant this is. That when this man gets mentioned, this Samaritan walks into the story that Jesus is telling. People who had been laughing about the idea of people walking to the other side of the road, when he shows up, all of a sudden they boo. Some guy yells out in the back of the crowd, throw the Samaritan off the cliff too. Everybody was upset and mad and they're looking and saying, oh, I can't believe a Samaritan showed up in the story. He's the real bad. Who? I wonder who the good guy is going to be, right? And all of a sudden Jesus says, the Samaritan, he walked over. He took care of this guy. Man, you can hear, you can feel the tension as people are listening to the story. You, you wonder, are people all of a sudden going, did, did Jesus just make the Samaritan the good guy? There's no way he's the good guy. Why would he make him the good guy? We hate the Samaritans. The Samaritans hate us. So everybody's already thinking, what's a Samaritan doing in this story? If anything, the lawyer in the story that Jesus told him expected that the robbers would have attacked the Samaritan. What, why is he not the one being attacked in the first place? Let's just make him the, you know, let's make him the poor Samaritan that gets beat up. You know, we kind of enjoy it a little bit, but we'll still help because we're the good guys. That's kind of the essence of how the story would have gone on. But in a brilliant display, hear this, in a brilliant display, Jesus flipped the script. Jesus smashed conceptions. Jesus took prejudice. He turned it on his head. And he placed the man at the mercy of the Samaritan. The Samaritan who wasn't looking to kill him like they would have done back or that they thought he would have done to them, but a Samaritan who was looking to save him. That would have been enough to cause anybody listening to this story to struggle. That would have caused the expert in the law, the Jewish expert in the law, to say Samaritans, ugh, you know Samaritans hate us. He said, you know how much I hate Samaritans. But then look what Jesus does. Jesus goes back to questions. He says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? And the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Now, do you see anything here? The expert in the law replied, right? The one who had mercy on him. Why, why didn't he say the Samaritan? The, the Samaritan was the, was the good neighbor. <laughs> because he couldn't even say Samaritan. He, he simply called him the one. His hatred, his prejudice, his distaste for the other was so significant, he couldn't even say the word Samaritan. The hero of the story, the one who Jesus says would be a neighbor to you if you were suffering, remained a nameless nobody. See, and here's what the man discovered. This is what I put in my notes, that the man discovered that actually naming your neighbor, 
especially those that you want nothing to do with, is the hardest thing to do. Yet Jesus shows us, and hear me say this, we don't get to pick and choose how we fill out that blank. When he says, who is my neighbor? Love your blank neighbor. Jesus says, you don't get to pick and choose how you fill out that blank. Because if a Samaritan could fill out that blank when Jesus was telling this story, anyone can go in that blank. But there's one more thing that we need to see today. One more thing that is so significant that it's easy to say, love your neighbor. It's another thing to fill in the blank and name that neighbor. Now we're feeling a little more tension. But in the book of John, we find that Jesus took this even further. And he showed this that not only are we to say, love our neighbor, not only are we to fill in the blank and name that neighbor, Jesus shows us that we are to walk towards that neighbor, to build relationship with that neighbor, to bring life to that neighbor. In John 4, starting in verse 1, it says, Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although, in fact, it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now, this story could go a few different ways, but what it next is so critical. So Jesus is leaving this area down here. He's going north towards Galilee, back to his hometown, back to his community, Nazareth, Galilee, that whole area. And it could go in a couple different ways, but what he says next is critical. John 4, 4, it says this, now he had to go through Samaria. Now he had to go through Samaria. Samaria. Now, this is a strange statement. Did we have verse 4, four Jill? Is it not there? Oh, for some reason, verse 4 got missed. So let me, let me make sure this is clear. I want you to hear this. So he left Judea, went back once more into Galilee. Listen to that. And verse 4 says this. Now he had to go through Samaria. Now, this is a strange statement. It's an odd way to start a story. Here's what I want you to see. It wasn't like the roads were closed. And Jesus, in fact, could have traveled any number of roads. And the thing about Samaria was this. The road through Samaria to go to Galilee was the shortest. But for reasons that we've already talked about earlier, people would rather go around Samaria to get anywhere than to go through it. But it purposely tells us that he had to go through Samaria as if he was driven by his spirit to go through Samaria, as if he was told, you need to go through Samaria. Here's the point. Jesus walked his talk by taking the road to Samaria. Jesus understood that you are to love your neighbor. You are to name who that neighbor is. And then Jesus put action to his statements. And he walked into Samaria. And listen to this. And instead of bringing death, violence, and hatred that the Samaritans had come to know all throughout their history, by people like John Herkinus and people before that who went up into Samaria 
out of hatred. They went up into Samaria because they didn't like the people who lived there because they were different. Who were willing to go into Samaria to show hatred. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus goes into Samaria and it doesn't say that he feared. It doesn't say that he was worried about being around an other that he didn't uh, understand. It says that he went into Samaria and he went into Samaria to bring life and to offer life. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? Now, Jesus asks a question just like we saw in the other story. There's a question. There's, a, there's an answer. A question and an answer. This is you know, kind of the nature of the conversation. Listen to her response in John 4, 9. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? And just in case we didn't know the background, they put in parentheses, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Now check this out. This time, Jesus asked the first question, and it's this Samaritan woman who turns the question back on him. I love this. This is like a moment where people are like, you know, people think, oh, well, they're not smart. You know, they're just, a, that, you know, they would have said something like, oh, she's just a dumb Samaritan woman. Or they would have said, oh, well, you can't expect much of them, right? I mean, this is what people do in prejudice, right? They, they limit people. They put down people. And all of a sudden, this woman turns a question around on Jesus. She turns and turns this into a battle of wits, and she wins the battle. She asked the question. This is an amazing reality that we're seeing here. The scriptures, the text is lifting up the Samaritan woman as someone of intelligence, of someone smart, of someone who, who bested Jesus in some questions here. This is incredible. So she turns this question around. In it, you can hear her wonder. You can hear her sarcasm. Does he not know the history? Does he not care how this looks? She says, does, does he not care where I'm from? And in Jesus' response here, we find a reminder of the good news. And we find a reminder of the good news that we talked about this last week, that it's good news for everyone because it's good news for anyone. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. See, in this moment, Jesus showed the experience of new life found in him, knew no boundary. Listen, he says, living water. People would have understood what this is to mean. And as we see their conversation go later on, she recognizes, she sees, she begins to understand he is the Messiah. He is the long-awaited Messiah that doesn't just bring life to one group of people, but brings life to all of the world. And that is all built into what Jesus says here. I am bringing you life. I am inviting you to experience new life. And that life knew no boundary based on gender. It knew no boundary based on geography. 
It knew no boundary based on, based on ethnicity or any other limit that we want to place on grace and mercy. And that is the essence of this story. Any limit that we want to place on grace and mercy is smashed right here in this one moment. And their conversation continues. Jesus continued to reveal who he was. He invited this Samaritan woman to believe. She did. And then she went and she told her whole town the good news of Jesus. Look what happens. So many of the Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them. And he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. This is a huge statement. The outsiders, the Samaritans, in this moment, make the claim, say the words that shift how people understood good news in that day. They say in these words, in this moment, something that shifts everything for them, that tells everybody who is listening to this story that it is good news for everyone because it's good news for anyone. He is the Savior of the world. As we close out this story, as we see the invitation that Jesus extended to people that nobody would have expected him to extend it to, I can't help but think of a familiar verse that is found just a chapter before the story. In John chapter 3, just a chapter before this, reread, we, we're going to read these words that maybe find new meaning for us today. Familiar words. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And guys, that word world is pretty big. It's a big word. Yet our temptation, our temptation is to shrink it down. We hear that word, we say, oh yeah, 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 God loves this world. But we are so tempted by our brokenness, by something within our humanity that doesn't belong there, that says we should shrink down that word. And my prayer and my hope today is this. As I, as I wrestled with this text, as I talked about these stories, as I thought about these this week, as I sat down and wrote my message, my hope and prayer is this. That as we've explored these stories, that we see a Jesus who will never justify a limited view of his love and grace. And that we see a Jesus who will always challenge us to see an expansive view of his love as he shatters our preconceived notions, our ideologies, and our prejudices. May we see in these stories, 
How easy it is to have a limited view of the concept of God's love for this world. And may we see that that is shattered, that our preconceived notions, our preconceived understandings are that we are to open ourselves up and to begin to see his love in ever-expanding ways because that is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, I think most of us can say that we should love our neighbors. But what if when it comes to actually naming that neighbor? And what if that name is a name that we're uncomfortable saying out loud? What if in saying that name, we feel shame, conviction, or guilt about the way that we've treated that kind of neighbor? And what if loving them is still hard for us to do? See, may we love our neighbors whoever they may be, calling out their names, walking towards them with an offer of life and love. And may we see that it's always been good news for anyone. Because as these stories show us, Jesus taught us that it's always been good news for everyone. Let's pray. God, we thank you for these stories. God, for the reminder that it's so easy for us to make the familiar so mundane. To take what we know so well and to limit it to something we like to hear. Father, we pray that we would take these stories and we would allow them to convict us, to shift us, to move us. We all have neighbors. We have a hard time naming. If we just pause and sit in this moment and we filled in that blank out loud, if we said that word, we know that it would struggle. We may have a, a specific person in mind. We may have a specific group in mind. God, convict us, help us to see that as followers of Jesus, that kind of mindset has no place in our faith. Help us to see an ever-expansive love. And help us to be people who actually bring good news. Good news for all. And it's in your name that we pray today. Amen.